Well, we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. I encourage you to follow along as we work our way through these verses this evening. You'll have seen already through the, the studies to, to date that Peter is writing this first epistle to equip believers to live as exiles in the world. Already we have seen how he has dealt with who we are, the question of identity in which we have our security as believers. We have seen too how we have had this call to be a holy people, to submit to authorities, to live with an orderly family life. And then we've seen too how it is necessary to face suffering for righteousness' sake. And we've rejoiced, haven't we, in that wonderful gospel statement of chapter 3 and verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We have seen the Lord Jesus, the one who is our substitute, the one who went to the cross that our sin debt might be paid. We have seen Peter remind us how he was then raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, redemption's work being done. And yet, that testimony that we've just reflected, those wonderful truths and assurances that are ours in the Lord Jesus, those need to be expressed, don't they, in the way we live our lives. They need to be expressed in a, a distinctiveness of character and priorities. And it is to that distinctiveness and the way that we live our lives that Peter now turns his attention as we come to this early part of chapter 4. I found it helpful, and I hope you will too, to think about this section in three blocks. Verses 1 to 3, there's something there about arming and ceasing. Verses 4 to 6, opposing and judging. And verses 7 through to 11, Something about preparing and serving. Verses 1 to 3 then, we see arming and ceasing. Verse 1 says, therefore, therefore, pointing us back to the passage that immediately precedes us, taking us back in Peter's mind to those verses from verse 18 of chapter 3 in particular, and again pointing us to the Lord Jesus who suffered in the flesh. And he tells us that since Christ suffered in the flesh, we are to arm ourselves, arm ourselves. That is, we are to make ourselves ready or to be equipped, if you like, with the same way of thinking as Christ, with the same way of thinking as Christ. Now, that's quite a challenge. And maybe you would say, well, what was the Lord Jesus' way of thinking when he looked to the cross, how can we equip ourselves in the way that he equipped himself? How can we think in the way that he thought? Well, perhaps Luke chapter 9 helps us in verse 23. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How are we to arm ourselves with the same thinking as the Lord Jesus? Well, it is surely to be prepared to take up our cross and to follow him. It's not that Peter here is saying that we suffer in the way that Christ suffered. 
in its depth and in its efficacy, of course, Christ's death is unmatched. And yet there is a sense for you and I as believers tonight that we must be willing for whatever taking up our cross may mean in our daily lives and in our witness, even if that means suffering or leads to cost. We who have died to sin, to take Peter's expression from chapter 2 and verse 24, we are those who he says here must cease from or break from sin so that it no longer rules over us. We need to be clear here what Peter is and isn't saying regarding our sin. If you're a believer tonight in the Lord Jesus, if you have come to the place where you have recognized your sin, where you have asked the Lord Jesus to come and to forgive your sin on account of what he did for you at Calvary, if that is a reality for you this evening, then you are already free from sin's penalty. The penalty of judgment, the loss of hell, is already dealt with because Christ took your hell. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus tonight, you can look forward to a day when not only sin's penalty is gone, but sin's presence is gone. Because one day you will be with him in glory. And that's a wonderful, glorious prospect to have. What Peter is speaking about here is not breaking from sin in terms of having to deal with sin's penalty. He's not talking about what comes ahead of us in terms of sin's presence. What he's talking about is today's battle with sin's pollution. Sin's pollution. The battle that we must face day by day. That's what he's talking about here when we talk about having ceased from or broken from sin. And then verse 2, he goes on to explain that. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We who are free now from sin's penalty, look to a day when we will be free from sin's presence must today seek with God's help to deal with sin's pollution. We must no longer live for human passions. We must devote, he says, the time that we have left to us on this earth to the will of God, to the will of God. And Peter is quite blunt here in the way that he describes this. Verse 3, he says the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles, what unbelievers do. In other words, he's saying enough is enough. Whatever's gone before, now we need to stop. We need to look to arm ourselves with this same thinking as the Lord Jesus and have done with all that is going on around us. Now, I don't know what you think of when you read that list in verse 3. Doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. I can imagine some folks saying, well, hang on a minute. I don't recognize that list. I don't recognize it in the way that I lived before I was converted. I don't recognize it particularly in the lives of those around me and family and friends who are not yet believers. But actually, when you stop and think about it, the reality is that all of us outside of Christ were in that list somewhere. 
Because we were living for ourselves, living for me, for pleasure, for excitement. And all of us were idolaters because all of us put something or someone else on the throne of our hearts apart from Christ. And here's what Peter is challenging believers about tonight. He's saying, look, is it just possible that some of us who are believers in Christ still have one foot in that camp? We're not quite ready to break from it. We're not quite ready to cease from it. And he's saying to us tonight, the time has come, enough is enough. We look at our lives, don't we, as Christians. And we recognize how easy it is still to have one foot in that camp. We live in an age where the sources of distraction and temptation were never more accessible to us than they are now. Think about some of the things that might give rise to that difficulty. Here's one that isn't necessarily sinful, but think about some of our hobbies. Not sinful necessarily, but how consuming are they in terms of our time and our money? What about the company we keep? What about how honest we really are? How we spend our time? What things come out of our mouths? What we watch? Where we go? I wonder is it possible tonight that Peter needs to say to us, enough is enough. We need that break. We need to cease. We need a distinctiveness in our lives that is unmistakable to those around us. Now, it may be if Peter was here, somebody might say, well, hang on, Peter, a minute. You don't know my situation. You don't know and you could fill in the next bit. Something that might, might in our minds kind of justify the way we, way we live. And the question might be, how can we be armed with that same way of thinking as the Lord Jesus to cease from sin? How can we be armed? What does that mean? Well, Peter's already told us earlier in the letter because he has pointed us back in chapter 1 to the living word of God. So you would go to verse 23 of chapter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, he says, that was preached to you. That's the word that Paul tells the Ephesians is the sword of the Spirit. There's what you're arming yourself with, the sword of the Spirit. It's what the writer to the Hebrews describes as sharper than any two-edged sword. How do I arm myself to live distinctively? How do I know how to live distinctively? Well, it's in God's Word. That's our weapon to be so saturated in the word that our thoughts and our passions and our will are taken captive to God, grasping more each day of the holiness of God. 
So that in our individual study, and as we gather together as a company of God's people, we're armed to cease from living for sin. Arming and ceasing. And then verses 4 to 6, there's opposing and there's judging. Being exiles in this world means, of course, that we are at odds with the culture around us. Verse 4 tells us that. That in respect of the lifestyle that others live, those folk are surprised when you don't join them. The word for surprise there is quite a strong word. It means to be shocked. It has the underlying idea of somebody being shocked to the extent that they're offended. And those who are caught up, he tells us, in a flood of debauchery, when they see that you won't join them, they are shocked to the point of offense that you won't join them. And of course, we see that today, don't we? Maybe more than ever before. It used to be that we would have said that folk might look at Christians as a little bit odd and they would just you know, leave them to do their own thing and not say or get involved, and that's okay. But not anymore. Today, of course, Christians are very actively opposed. When you decline to join the flood, as he describes it in verse 4, when you instead swim against the flood, then he's telling us that you need to expect people to be shocked and offended. After all, if we are to be salt and light, well, salt in a, in a cleansing way stings, doesn't it? And if you are light to those who prefer to stay in the darkness, then that's going to be opposed as well. Now, maybe for most of us, that's nothing more than low-level opposition. But actually, even in our own nation, some have at the very least lost their jobs. And of course, if you go elsewhere in the world, we know that folk have lost a great deal more, including their lives. And the noise of folks who are objecting and being shocked is getting louder. We struggle to get a hearing for the gospel. Our churches are no longer full. And it might seem that the enemy has the upper hand. But if we're tempted to think like that, Verse 5 gives us a solemn answer if we're tempted to despair. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There will come a day of reckoning and of judgment for those who oppose the rule and the reign of Christ. The Apostle Paul said essentially the same thing when he was speaking to the intelligentsia of his day in Athens. Acts 17, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. A day of judgment. Now for the believer, we say it again, there is no fear in that day because Christ has suffered and borne God's just wrath against us in our place. But friends, tonight for someone to stand outside of Christ and one day to know they will stand before a holy God, that is a fearful thing. And if there's someone here this evening and you've yet to come to trust the Lord Jesus, you've been listening to what's been said Sunday by Sunday and you know what Christ has done and you know you need to be saved, tonight's the night to come. That you might no longer be under judgment, but rather 
have made peace with God. It's a solemn thought, that, isn't it? A judgment to be. How important it is that we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and give glory to God that we share with others. There, there is a great gospel message and one who has stood in their place and one who can forgive their sins. Verse 6, Peter reassures believers here that those who have already died in Christ have already been recipients of God's grace. There was a worry in some parts of the early church that those who had died before Christ came back, some I had missed out. And Peter's saying, look, this is why. Because this judgment was to come, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, those who have already died, that even though they were judged in the flesh, that's probably a reference to folk who died as martyrs, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. What a privilege it is to be in a company of people with that assurance. We think of those of our own number, our own family, who are no longer with us, that God has called home, and we can say that God's promises to them are good. Dead believers are alive, dwelling with God. And Peter is saying here tonight, the challenge is for those who resist the gospel, who reject the gospel, to come and to see their need. So there's arming and there's ceasing. There's opposing and there's judging. And then verses 7 to 11, there's preparing and serving. Preparing and serving. The end of all things, he says in verse 7, is at hand. The end of all things. Now, that still attracts people to snigger. There was a time when it was the sandwich man with the board. If you're under about 40, you'll have no idea what I've just said. You can Google it afterwards. But if you're older than that, some of you are smiling, so you're older than that, you know what I mean. The, the, you know, the person will go around with the board, and that would be the message. The end of all things, the people laughed at them. They're extremists. Ah, forget about them. But for Peter's original audience, and no less for us, Christ's return is imminent. The whole New Testament anticipates his return. And we need to hear Peter's certainty. And we need to heed his response. If all things one day is coming, are coming to an end, if that time is at hand, how are we actually to live as Christians? Well, for a start, we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We're to bring in our right mind, the, word, the words mean, to be spiritually alert. Why? For the sake of your prayers. We live in a day when prayer is more important than ever. We need to be clear-minded, spiritually alert, so that our prayers are informed and intelligent, not vague and cold, so they're urgent and they're biblical. We need to take a close interest in people and places and events and situations so we can pray from them. I wonder, does that, does that characterize your prayer life and mine? Or is it all sometimes really rather vague and general? Not only that, he says, 
we are, verse 8, above all, to keep loving one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. That word earnestly is a lovely word. It means a love that stretches and strains to make relationships work. There's a depth and a consistency that he is saying here that is needed for our love one for another. Mindful, no doubt, of what the Lord Jesus had said in John 13, that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's a great witness to the world around us. You see, as recipients of God's grace, none of us has any right to be here apart from that grace. Have you ever stopped to think what a motley crew we are if we looked around us? You wouldn't choose it, would you? Not sure I would. Heard some of the other week just saying there are lots of folks in our churches that we wouldn't want to go on holiday with. Well, maybe that's true or not. I don't know. But God has chosen us. God has brought us together. And you and I are to earnestly love one another, to stretch that love, to meet with folks that we wouldn't maybe naturally otherwise be close to or associated with, but we are now. And what a witness it is to the world around us that cannot explain how God transforms and unites and brings together a people who are willing to forgive each other 70 times 7. Peter will have remembered Jesus telling him that's what he had to do. People who are to show patience with each other, humility, unwilling and slow to point out faults, the kind of love, he says, that covers a multitude of sins. Can I ask you, is your love tonight as a congregation evident? To those outside the congregation? Can I ask you, is it evident to those inside the congregation, to each other? Is it evident to the established member and to the newcomer alike? And then see verse 9. That love stretches to hospitality to one another, to do it without grumbling, practical, willing hospitality. Perhaps we've lost this in recent years and perhaps particularly since COVID, but I wonder, is it possible to regain that sense of homes being open and help being offered and children being looked after and gifts given, not for, for show, but from a heart of love? And then, Verses 10 and 11, maybe following on quite naturally from that, we are to use our gifts. Now, that's the cue for somebody to say, I don't have one. Well, just listen again to what he says here. Peter says, as each has received a gift. Yes, you have. Peter says so. The Apostle Paul says so as well. You can go to Romans 12, for example, and in other places. A gift that is unique to you. It's not that two of us may have the same gift, but, but mediated through your personality, you'll exercise it differently from me. John MacArthur, the American, uh, the American theologian, says each believer's spiritual giftedness is unique, as if each were a spiritual snowflake or a fingerprint. We're to use our gifts as good stewards, we're told. Not of money, but of something much more precious, but of God's grace. For some, that's speaking, he says. That's a teaching role, a preaching role. Will you pray for those in this congregation who this week will teach 
the girls' brigade, the boys' brigade, the young life group on Sunday morning next week with the, the young folks that come through, whoever stands in the pulpit, will you pray for them? And then there is those who serve. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's to those who serve that is given this promise of the strength that God supplies. Hope Dennis will forgive me for doing this. I didn't ask him beforehand, but as I ask you, what is your gift? And if you're saying to me, do you know I'm not sure? I challenge you to ask Dennis or one of the other elders who you know to pray with you, to tell you, to suggest to you what your gift might be. And then offer it, try it, exercise it. Pray about the gaps in the ministries in this congregation and see if you could fill one of them. It's interesting, isn't it, that when he talks about the end of all things with such urgency, Peter frames his response in all of these very practical ways. Why? End of verse 11, so God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He is the one who has the glory and the dominion. He is the one whose service we are rendering. He is the one who in everything we're told is to be glorified. So how you and I live as individual believers, how we live together as a company of believers, those things matter. And essentially that's what Peter is saying here in these verses. Those things matter. In the small things, the practical things that build the foundation. As those who no longer live for human passions. But for the will of God. Bishop J.C. Ryle of Liverpool talks about those who aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven. And to pass through this world like a stranger and a pilgrim. Traveling to his home. That's a good commentary on what Peter is saying here. And our eye is on the one to whom the glory and the dominion belong forever and ever. And Peter ends here with an amen. So let it be. And so must we. For this is how we are to live. As exiles for him. Amen. A short prayer together. Father, help us to hear clearly from your word tonight the challenges that we must uh, face in our own lives, that we might break from sin and live for the will of God. Lord, help us to see what we must do. By your spirit, give us the help to do it. And may everything that we say and do bring glory and honor to the one to whom glory and dominion belong forever and ever. Amen.